0: You know, I've never actually discussed a comedic work before, and therefore I have decided to try and take this as uh, seriously as possible. So, the first thing I want to discuss is how this was actually Bill Pullman's second film ever, which is actually amusing when you think about it in hindsight, given the fact that he's become such a large star henceforth. They actually hired him specifically because they wanted a nobody who was just starting his career, and... It has been argued that this helped to start his career although this film as with many others i have covered recently did not actually sell well at the box office although it has since received a fairly large amount of praise especially since parody films like this have started to become a lot more of the norm it is also probably worth noting that i found a very unusual series of patterns when it came to this film see If you were to ask me which my favorite Mel Brooks film is, especially after rewatch, I would say this one, without hesitation or question. The film made me laugh several times. It was quite a jocular experience. However, I have since discovered that a large number of people on various uh, forums and groups amongst the Internet apparently consider this to be one of his worst works, if not his actual worst work, or the beginning of him actually making, as has been described, bad films which is something that's a direct quote from one of the sites I looked at when I was trying to look up why people would think in this direction. Now, I wasn't able to really come up with any specifics on that one, so I decided to ask a couple of viewers and a few friends and family members as well. What I found was a bit of a mixed response. Some people preferred Blazing Saddles, some people preferred Men in Tights, which actually came after this one. Quite a few people thought of uh, History of the World as their favorite. However there were still a few who thought of Spaceballs as their favorite, so I'm going to go ahead and presume that thanks to the very nature of a, parody, of a parody work, it is most likely that the main thing that is determining whether or not one is their favorite or not is the specific subject matter being parodied. Brooks has a very specific style for all of the films I just mentioned. Blazing Saddles, uh, Blazing Saddles' History of the World, Young Frankenstein... Uh, Men in Black, or excuse me, Men in Black, Men in Tights, excuse me, and of course Spaceballs, all of these follow a similar pattern. They take something that's an established, well-known concept, and he lives it, he thoroughly invests himself into all the things that makes it as beloved as it is, and then he makes fun of that in a light-hearted and poking manner, while also doing his usual attempt at humor, which range from complex to crude. And then he puts that together in a film. In other words, the only thing that really varies from film to film is the nature of the subject material and thus the specific jokes. Or, allow me to put this another way. If I was to tell an in-joke right now, people who get it would laugh and be amused by it. People who don't would just look at me weird. People who had to have it explained for them would be like, okay, and you could see why the varying responses would then exist for the wildly different genres of the films that he has attempted to parody over his years. Can I stop doing the serious thing yet? (laughs) It's taking a weirdly large amount of effort to do do, do the the boring, you know, straight man look. I mean, I can usually be the straight man. That's usually my approach when it comes to comedy, is the other ones are doing the jokes, and I'm the one that they're playing off of. But uh... I don't know if I want to do the entire rumination that way. This film makes me laugh a lot. Most of Brooks' films do. It's funny because, and I'm about to probably oust myself as the worst film geek ever, it reminds me a lot of South Park. Yes, I just compared Mel Brooks' works to South Park. On the off chance you're still listening to me, the reason I do so is because they both have one similarity, only the one, and that is that both of them kind of hit every gamut of humor. There are many different types and approaches to humor, and well... Sometimes I find both South Park and Brooks' works astonishingly funny. This is usually when they're doing something that is an inside joke or meta humor or something that tries to present itself in a way that is complex. And, this is important, doesn't explain the joke. There are a lot of doesn't explain the jokes in this. Example. There's a bit where he pulls up a can of Perrier and starts sniffing from it. I'll be honest, I didn't know Perrier even existed back then. I only became aware of it when I started having to drink seltzer water on a regular basis thanks to the health issues I went through. So now, many, many years later, I mean, I've seen this film since I'm pretty sure actually it came out. Uh, Mom and I went to see it in the theaters. I have seen this film many, 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 many times. And I never got that until today when I watched that. So there's a lot of in-jokes that they don't bother to explain. So that's, uh, that's the general humorous, uh, attempted approach they do. And then occasionally there's jokes about sex and farts and scatological humor and whatever. In other words, what I usually refer to as crude humor. And it just kind of bounces back and forth between these two at will. Now, there's, as I said, I don't want to be dismissive because obviously it does hit several other types of jokes as well. And I have some notes about that. But for the most part, what we're seeing here is, probably one of the biggest reasons, in my opinion, while Mel Brooks's works were so successful and are so critically claimed even to this very day. Despite the fact that I mentioned that only a few of my friends and family liked Spaceballs the best, all of them like this film. I would imagine that just about anyone watching this rumination right now also likes this film. It is very well beloved in every circle I've ever been in. and That's saying something, because I'm the guy who doesn't actually fit in just one social circle, but I'm getting off topic. So, what I'm now going to do is something very boring. I'm going to explain jokes. First off, we have the ship dragging along endlessly. Now, there's about three or four jokes that look like they're digs at Star Wars, but they actually aren't if you think about it. They obviously... Let me say say that more accurately. They're not jokes at Star Wars' expense specifically. They're jokes at science fiction, which by natural byproduct makes them also target Star Wars. For example, the really big ship. Some of you may or may not be aware of this. I myself have complained about this concept in more serious science fiction works many times. But science fiction has this weird obsession with having bigger and bigger ships for the bad guys. That's how you know they're the bad guy. It's visual shorthand. The good guy? They have either a light ship or an organic looking ship or it's small. The bad guy? Big ship. Probably dangerous looking, deadly, huge. But the size is the big thing. Science fiction has been doing this for decades. So the first thing we see is this really long ship. We also see that even the orchestra is getting bored. Because what you have happen... And, you know, again, forgive me. I'm basically just explaining the jokes here. But what you have happen is the ship starts to go and there's the musical beat. And it's a nice, decent beat of music. Beat is the wrong term. but You know, it's, it's a sequence of music. And then the music just stops. And you can just picture the orchestra going... Are we Are we on the next scene? Okay, keep going, keep going. Okay. And then they do the second beat, and then they stop. And the ship's still going, and they're like... Okay. And then the third part of the music starts in, because it's just taken so long. This, of course, uh, leads to Dark Helmet. Now... Darth Vader reference, we're walking, we're walking. But again, I hate to point this out, Darth Vader himself was mostly inspired by how a lot of villains were portrayed when it came to science fiction. You know, the the face was usually obscured, and they were wearing black or dark colors, and they had the same general style to them. I I want you to sometime compare a picture of uh, Emperor Ming next to Darth Vader, and you're like, well, those don't look anything like each other. I'm not trying to say they look identical, but you can see how the same stylistic choice went into the design of both of them. Anyways, so now we have Dark Helmet, who comes in, who's evil. And that brings us to, I'd say, probably one of the biggest reasons why this film is better than the other ones, in my opinion. Rick Moranis. Moranis is uniquely talented for somehow being able to portray a large range of things... And making all of them funny in different ways. He can be the pathetic everyman, and he can be the sniveling snide, and he can be, you know, the, the domineering person, and he can be the incredible intellectual. And at all of these times, he knows exactly how to twist that into something that basically makes fun of the role he's playing. And that's what he does in this film. If you pay attention, there's multiple, shall we say, layers to Dark Helmet. And we even see two of them right off the bat. The do-me-dis-I-will-destroy-everything. God, I can't breathe in that helmet! As a fun aside, Moranis himself decided to lower his voice every time he speaks within the helmet. Just to add to the role. And if you don't believe me when I come- when it comes to Rick Moranis's, uh, shall we say, genius when it comes to comedic timing and approach... During one scene, he was given a bunch of little dolls and told to just do something because they didn't have a script for it and they didn't know what to do with it. So Rick Moranis decided to make up the doll scene. Rick Moranis came up with that scene. And that doesn't surprise me at all. Next thing, let's see, what other jokes can I ruin in this? Um, So one of the other things they do, every science fiction film worth its damn, worth its damn, worth. worth a damn, worth its salt, will bother to try and establish a distinct style. If you look at Star Trek Two versus Star Wars versus 2001 Space Odyssey versus... I don't know, I'm running out of ideas at this point. There's generally a unique style to it, at least up to a certain point, until everything became teal and amber. Now, <clears throat> Spaceballs does the same thing. And Spaceballs also has the advantage of two very big things. First of all, Mel Brooks by this point was not exactly some new filmmaker who, or who had just gotten into films from theater and didn't know what he was doing. He was pretty much at his peak when it comes to overall financial and, financial and political clout. He was able to throw a lot of weight into this film. That's good, for the same reason it was good for Galaxy Quest. I'll circle back to that in just a second. But the second thing he had going for him was he reached out to George Lucas and said, Hey! Now, Lucas apparently loved this film, and I believe that. Lucas is absolutely the kind of person who would enjoy something like this. He's a film geek, and he does know how to make fun of himself, and he can appreciate good humor. He's not into, you know, mean-spiritedness, but frankly, I don't think this film ever became mean-spirited, which is another thing Mel Brooks does very well, by the way. He knows how to poke fun at something and laugh with it, rather than mock something and laugh at it. There's actually a surprisingly thin line in between those two things, but in my opinion, Brooks and Brooks his overall style never crosses over that line, and that's important. Parody has to be funny, not mean. But I said I'd cycle back to Galaxy Quest. He had Lucas's support and aid when it comes to this, because all he had to do was give up merchandising rights, which is funny in its own right. I'm pretty sure there are people who would buy Spaceballs merchandise to this very day if it was available, but that's neither here nor there. The point is that he got ILM to do several of the effects for this film. In addition to the fact that, they, in addition to them working with them, the ILM also enabled them to use some of the templates that they already had still lying around. Because remember, Return of the Jedi was completed just four years prior to this. So they still had a lot of these things in the box, so to speak. And a lot of their techniques and a lot of their cameras and a lot of the, the just the general tech and expertise was put into this film. And frankly, it shows. Well, this film doesn't look as good as Return of the Jedi visually in terms of its special effects, you can see a lot of the similar styles. Which is, I mean, let's be honest, ILM is still doing business with films to this very day, so that's not exactly all that surprising. But what this meant is between... The support of ILM and the support the political sway he had. I mean, he got John Goodman, for God's sakes, who at the time was a giant in film in the film industry. Um he had financial support, he had political support, he had the expertise, he had good actors. Bill Pullman just starting, John Goodman at his prime, Rick Moranis at his prime. He had everything going for him. And that meant that the film looked and played very good. Now that's important. Because There's no nice way to say this. A space opera science fiction anything, in many (coughs) ways... Excuse me. That wasn't... That wasn't intentional. Mm. Lives and breathes on its special effects. Oh, don't mistake me. You need good characters and good storytelling, but if you have a great story and great characters and a great script and just crap special effects, well... You kind of expect it from a science fiction film, or more accurately, a space opera science fiction film. It is more only more recently, and I mean within the last decade, that we've started to see science fiction films that have actually tried to breach the no special effects problem and have only had middling success. Later on this year, or earlier this year, I do these out of order, I'll be looking at a film called Primer, which is a science fiction film which had a budget of $7,000 in 2004. They managed that, but they did so by basically bypassing the special effects requirement entirely. Imagine if primer had been set in space, and you already see the problem. Just the most basic level of special effects, of trying to do something like setting it on a spaceship, well, you're either going to need to show the spaceship from the outside, which that's a problem to be solved, or you need to show space from the inside, looking out. Which is a problem to be solved. And it's going to immediately increase the budget requirements. And that's what I mean by the science fiction, the the, the FX science fiction things are so married to each other. You need that extra money in order to do the proper effects in order for it to look good. Because if a science fiction space film or show or whatever doesn't look good, if those effects don't sell one way or the other, stylistically or otherwise, then the whole work suffers because it's like, well, it's like seeing a really good theater play performed on a, in a high school, right? I assume that, it, okay, this is going to sound like the weirdest analogy I've ever done. Imagine there's, a, let's say, say college instead. Let's say there's a college play. And let's say it's a good play, um, you know, like a musical, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, right? Now, let's say you've actually got good actors and good singers. And let's say that the sets are crap. Like, actually crap, like they're cardboard and crayon. You could still enjoy that work. You could still appreciate that work, but you could see why I would suffer drastically for that. Now, that's probably not a great example, but I'm trying to explain why this is such a big deal for this, because you need all three elements for a good sci-fi space opera, right? Now that I've talked about that for 50 minutes, I said I'd get back to Galaxy Quest. See, part of the point of Galaxy Quest, spoiler slightly, is the fact that they... They needed the fake sci-fi stuff to look as cheesy as possible, just like it did in many cases, in order to make the real sci-fi stuff look as real as possible. Because the whole gag, the whole point, was the real stuff was supposed to be real, actually freaking happening. That, that was the underlying premise of the entire film. If the modern, the actual real science fiction stuff didn't look realistic, it wouldn't have worked. Because it would have lost its entire premise and point. And I just unintentionally reminded myself of yet another reason why the effects of this film matter so much. Because science fiction has a really, really bad... How do I phrase this? I don't know if this is true anymore, but when I was growing up, and for a couple decades afterwards, um, I'd say at least into the early aughts, science fiction kind of had the unfortunate uh, negative connotations of, you know fake looking robots and big dials and 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 you know plastic spaceships fl- flailing in front of a string you know that kind of a thing right and i mean there's a reason it has that reputation it's because most sci-fi for a very long time was that because they didn't have the money or the re- or the effects or the technology to bake into making these things work and most of the people hadn't even understood the 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 connection between space sci-fi and special effects that I've just spent way too long describing. You're probably wondering why I'm spending so much time on this. This is a comedy film. What do you want me to talk about? <laughs> I was so flabbergasted when I saw this on the list. I'm like, I don't know what to say about that. Ugh. Do they want me to just go through and, and, and repeat the jokes? <laughs> oh, this one was funny, and then this one was funny. I mean, we kind of do that to this day, to some extent or another. <clears throat> Perrier, right? Uh, do, I, do they want me to explain the jokes? You know, one of the biggest fl- uh, rules not to do when it comes to comedy. <sighs> I mean, I could talk about, for example, uh, the stylistic choice of the film, which I haven't actually finished saying what it is yet. All of this was just explaining that the film had to look like a high-budget sci-fi film, which it actually was. But their stylistic look... Well, again, it's very unique. In fact, I can't think of any other sci-fi film that has ever approached this exact same aesthetic. And that aesthetic is mundane every day in space. They literally use just just 80s phones and a frickin' Winnebago and, you know, the the, the gas station looks exactly like a normal gas station and they still deal in bucks and just... Except it's space bucks. Everything about the aesthetic is designed to look as though you were just to magically... Change the modern day of the time, mid 80s, or actually, I guess, mid late 80s, whatever. 80s, into suddenly existing in space. And they stuck to that aesthetic as a deliberate stylistic choice consistently, which makes it look fairly unique even to this day. So, that worked out. I should mention that the first time I ever saw this film, I saw the censored version. And I didn't even know that was a thing. Uh, back when, uh, you know, local networks, which. Do those even exist anymore? When local networks would be the ones to re-show films or shows or whatever, and this would show up and then we'd watch it there, um, all of the cussing and certain specific scenes were cut out entirely. Now, this is funny because as a kid, I didn't even know this. I just assumed I was watching the, the movie. I had a similar problem with Predator, actually, the original Predator, where there's entire scenes where when I finally saw them, I was like, I don't remember this scene. Similar problem here. Uh, When I first saw this film, I believe it was actually the DVD release was the first time I saw the film uncensored. I was like, whoa. It just caught me by surprise because I'd I'd watched the film by that point like three or four times because I love this film. (laughs) I also have to admit, when I watched it as a kid, I watched it on the TV that I've actually referenced several times. Uh, It's the TV that was about, well, I'm not going to be able to fit it all on the the screen here, but it was about this big-ish, and the screen on it was about this big. And it wasn't a great screen. So, you know, I, I could see some things. We had the TV for a long time, too, up until, I want to say high school, when we first replaced it with another TV, which also wasn't great. But anyways, <laughs> point being, there's a lot of jokes and gags I never saw until I saw this on a much larger screen. Because, well, I wasn't old enough to get it when I watched it in the theaters, and that was just the one time originally, and every time after that I was watching on this really tiny screen, so can see how there were issues now uh i'm trying to think what else to talk about here Uh, (laughs) they do they make fun of techno babble they make fun of exposition um naturally the parents of the characters are dead of course there are they are why wouldn't they be um Oh, yeah, I suppose I should mention something. Uh, you're probably wondering this. I was just thinking this myself. Uh, you know, Laura, you saw this in the theaters. Yeah. i got to be 100% honest. I barely remember it. <laughs> you know what I remember? Laughing my ass off. But as far as specifics, I didn't remember much of the film. It wasn't until... ooh, Hang on. i got to actually think about that. That was... Mm, so it would have been... 94, 93, 92. It was about 91-ish. Somewhere around the year 1991 was when we uh, started actually having uh, regular access to local television that actually did the stuff that I was mentioning earlier. And that was also, by that point, we had a VCR. I've referenced this over on the TNG ruminations. So with access to a VCR, it was like, aha! And we could record the thing, and that was the censored version. And that was the one I watched like five or six times because I thought it was hysterical. So that's the one that kind of stuck in my memory. Anyways, <clears throat> what the heck was next? Uh, light speed, of course, camera bo- They do meta humor all over the place. Uh, applied humor patterns is done regularly in order to try and make sure that you do a lot of the older jokes, who's on first, or the typical 1-2-3 gag, where it's 1-3-1-2, 1-2-3, 1-2-1-3. And I know that sounds really weird, but if you think about how many scenes in this film have three people, where it starts with three and then goes to one, and it goes to two, and then it goes to one, and then it usually goes to both two and three at the same time, and then back to one. There's a lot of scenes that follow the typical humor pattern. As I said, I've actually studied comedy several times, and it's weird to talk about in such an analytical format, because it does kind of sap all of the air from the tires, so to speak. But you can kind of see how there's a deliberate pattern to construction when it comes to comedy. As much as people say, who knows what's going to be found funny by whom, there are actually demonstrable um, methods that can generally engender some kind of humor within people. Moving on. So naturally, the next thing we do is it's like, okay, we're going to go to ludicrous speed. (laughs) I can't even say it. Obviously, they go to plaid, like you do. What else are you going to do? And as they go to plaid, uh, they naturally, completely overshot things, shoot things, which leads to the Winnebago being doomed. This is your typical second act structure. They now need to go into a down so they can rise back up in the third act. Pretty typical. I do have to point out one joke that I never got until now. And that joke is the fact that they are wandering the desert. Now, I know that sounds strange, but hear me out for a second. In a typical sci-fi movie, especially a space opera movie, it does follow a fairly specific pattern: space, planet, space. If it keeps going after that, it usually goes back and forth in a similar manner: space, planet, space, planet, space, planet. Now in this, now, there's no real reason to be on the desert planet, not really other than, of course, to meet yogurt and to get the Winnebago fueled up. But otherwise, that's it. In fact, the overwhelming majority of this film actually takes place in space, if you're paying attention. Because space, planet, space. So, two-thirds. Obviously, there's a few specific exceptions, the Dridia things. Although, those don't really count. That's more of a cameo than anything else. But if we do count them, that still goes planet, space, planet, space. But I'm getting off topic. Point being... The joke is that in just about any film like this, you expect there to be some long journey through hardship. We have to go through the swamp. We have to go through the great forest. We must traverse the arctic tundra. We must make our way through this blasted hellscape. We must endure this terrible cityscape and all the mobs therein. Excuse me. Mobs. Wow. (laughs) And all the muggers within. (laughs) I've been playing too many video games, which is funny because I haven't played games in a while. And, of course, we must we must pass the desert. The joke is the very fact that they're doing this at all. Because if you think about it from an in-character perspective, it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Where are they going? They have no scanning data. No, oh, we saw a city on the way in. No. They're just walking on the desert because that's what you do in these things. And, naturally, they're then rescued by the Dink Dinks, which I'm going to start calling the Dink Dinks from now on because it's the best thing ever. This leads to a bit of a pall in the film, and probably one of the only bits which I don't care for, even though certain specific gags are very funny. Obviously, you know, Yogurt, the Force is introduced, excuse me, the Schwartz is introduced into the film. Obviously, this is probably the most direct parodies to Star Wars, because if you're paying attention up until this point, again, 80s, the idea of a mystical fantasy element to sci-fi was actually still kind of... Not a common thing. Sci-fi was usually far more definitively sci-fi, and it isn't until later works and more modern works we'd see magic or fantasy elements blend into sci-fi as often as we would. So this is straight-up Star Wars parody. Which leads, of course, to the merchandising gag, which apparently was only put in because of the, the requirement that George Lucas had, which I find hysterical. Because, as usual, Brooks takes something and doesn't make one joke of it. He makes multiple jokes of it. In this case, the obvious being you know, the, the poke at George Lucas, but also the joking at merchandising in general. For those of you who don't remember, a lot of the original fortune that George Lucas himself made was specifically on the merchandising rights. And of course, hell, this is true to this very day. There are many creative works that only exist on the back of the merchandising and the money that comes in from selling toys and, and, and toilet paper and mer- flamethrowers. Okay, I'm being slightly facetious, but it is this is an actual fact. Look up sometime the kind of merchandising rights and how much that's been an issue when it comes to, say, Marvel Comics back in the 80s and 90s, to name one example. Or how much this basically caused issues with a recent television show I looked at called Young Justice. Or how this is still an issue when it comes to certain Disney products. And you, you get the idea. There, it, It's it's an omnipresent thing because, in many cases, the shows only exist to sell, you know, products. Which is it's a weird thing because I could actually name many examples of a creative work where it is a creative work, where actual real passion and effort work was put into making something good that the executives thought of as only a me- vehicle to make money by selling products. Hence the other layer of the joke. Anyways... God, I'm looking at my notes here. I... What do I talk about? I feel like I've talked a lot, but I don't feel like I've said much. <laughs> um, One of the things they do often is a tone of juxtaposo- juxta- A juxtaposition of something very ridiculous that is being portrayed in a serious manner. This is a fairly standard approach to a form of non-sequitur humor. The perfect example of this is when they come up with the combination lock. One, 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 two, 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 three, three, three. And the whole scene is framed and shot and voice acted, as well as acted, as if it's this big, serious, dramatic scene. I will give you the secrets to my home, you bastard. But the they're getting the combination to the the air, which is let's not even get into the physics of that. And it's one, two, three, four, five. You can see what I mean by the series being juxtaposed with that's that juxtaposed. I mean, there was a verb form of that with the, the 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 comical, the ridiculous. Also, I don't think I ever noticed before that the doctor's caddy, the the guy holding his clubs, is there in the room at the very beginning of that scene. He's there from the beginning. So he was probably brought fr- so that's another joke that's just in the background there. He was brought from the golf course and is now leaving to the golf course because that's all doctors do, right? It's go golfing and then perform surgeries. No comments. <clears throat> I mean I mean no comments, right? I I have no comment on that. They also do something else they tr- uh, in this film and this is something that is a virtue of the kind of political sway that uh, Brooks had at this point in his career. He brings in John Hurt who is John Hurt, and has him basically reenact the Alien scene in order to try and add some gravitas to the act. Fun fact: I didn't see Alien until after I saw Spaceballs. This is actually true. There's actually a lot of jokes I didn't get until I was older. When it comes to Spaceballs, like what does it mean? Good helmet. I don't. But that one was a biggie one for me because I had seen that scene and it didn't really bother me all that much. It was a little gross, but whatever. Years later, I finally saw Alien for the first time, and I thought I was actually prepared for the scene where the chestburster burst out of John Hurt. I was not. (sighs) Holy crap. That got me. And what's funny is I think it probably got me worse than a normal person because I was so, like, oh, I got this. now. I I know what's coming. No, I didn't. Oh, I was so unprepared. They also bring in Michael York. That was a funny choice to me. He plays one of the uh, gorillas, monkeys, right at the end. And, of course, you have to have references. We've got to have referential humor. Duh. They literally name-drop Star Trek, Star Wars, um, Planet of the Apes, you know, quite a few things like that. They also have only one real musical number in the whole film, and it's basically for the climax, which I find funny, because if you listen to the lyrics, it's actually kind of messed up. Is what you got is what we need, and what we do is not the day. I don't remember, but it's, it's just, it's kind of messed up. <laughs> Anyways. You'll notice I'm just kind of skipping through large sections of the film, because again, I don't have a lot to specifically say. I can't, I'm, I'm not going to just sit here and explain the jokes for you. I'm not going to diagnose exactly what attempts and styles of humor he uses. I could. As I said, I've studied humor, but I've actually already covered most of the major broad strokes. He uses crude humor. Um, for example, there's a scene where he is in front of the vidcam, which is at the frickin' toilet, which is already crude humor at the first step. And then there's the fact that he exposes himself to her accidentally, which is also crude humor. She gets a smirk out of it, which you can take however you want, by the way. Either he's big or he's small or she's humiliating her boss or however you want to think of that. So, crude humor. Uh, admittedly, the crude humor is way toned down in Spaceballs compared to most of his other works. In fact, I had issues when I, when it came to Blazing Saddles, because I saw Blazing Saddles after I saw Spaceballs, and I was just like, whoa! <laughs> Moving on. So, that's crude humor. We have, obviously, referential humor. I've already given an example of that. Planet of the Apes, boom, done. We have understanding the work humor. That only works if you take the existing work and understand why it works and then apply it in a different way. True parody humor only works and only only really clicks if it comes from a true love for the genre, which usually comes from with a true understanding for the genre. And I don't mean like, oh man, I I love gravity, I don't know how it works, but no, I'm I'm talking about something that you know inside and out. And this is one of Brooks' hallmarks and why he is so good at parody works. And you'll notice he hasn't hit any one genre more than once with the works I just mentioned, all the films I just mentioned. So his understanding of it is is essential in order to actually be able to diagnose it, dissect it, and then reconstruct it in a way that works. A very simple example of this. There's a very common thing in science fiction where, you know what, let's just go with the obvious one. The ship, right at the beginning, the big ship. There you go. Very simple example of that type of humor. Obviously, he's also very big on meta-humor. Now, there's a lot of examples of meta-humor in this film, but actually, my favorite is the one I haven't talked about yet, because this is now. What we're seeing now is now, sir. I actually legitimately thought about doing something like that, but unfortunately, because of my incredible workload, that would actually take a lot of time and effort, and I'd have to come up with a script and something to say, and I don't really have anything to say other than explaining it, so... <sighs> Doing that kind of uh, self-referential meta humor only works if it's very carefully plotted. You can't just go off camera, so to speak, and then that's the joke. You have to do something with it. You notice he only does a couple of moments of meta in this. The camera bonking in a dark helmet. The scene with, you know, that I just mentioned, which barely breaks the the, uh, fourth wall. Him turning off the camera, turning off the movie, excuse me, when he's trying to turn off the thing. Um during the lightsaber fight, one of them accidentally kills one of the cameramen, you know, just just stuff like that. Not a lot of examples of it. But that I want to cut back to that now is now scene really quick. Because one of the other things it does very cleverly is if you're paying attention, they only actually show footage from the film in the film for brief snippets, and it's already stuff that, well, it looks like, uh, oh, I forget what the term is for that, but, you know, initial draft of footage, which makes sense, because obviously they are making the film, and what they probably did, if they were smart, was they made the film out of order, so they'd already filmed the other stuff in order to be able to show it on the TV. But I point that out because all the other footage with all the sped up thing, which is something that would be far more difficult to do, is done when the camera's zoomed in just on the TV, so we don't actually see in the film that happening. Now, that's relevant because that means that they could do that at any time. They could have done those scenes dead last. They have finished all the editing and, and processing for the entire rest of the film, except for those scenes, and then they could po- process those and throw them up on a TV and throw a camera at the TV with the lighting set up for the necessary minutes, and then splice that into the film and done. It's a very, very smart way of doing it. But the other reason this works is, obviously, it's not just a parody on the meta sense, but the fact that at this point in time, historically speaking, films were starting to come out in the home video, well, first of all, at all, which was kind of a new idea. But second of all, the, the process, people have been trying to speed up the process to make it so that films would come out from theater to home in a much faster format than they had been doing. And that process kept being sped up and sped up until basically where we are now, where they could come out with a film in DVD the next week after a film hits theaters if they want to, which they usually don't, because they want to get as much theater money as they can. So in other words, they release it whenever they choose to, rather than whenever they can, which is not how it used to work. So there's that joke, and then there's the obvious meta-joke. It is also, in addition to that, a complex joke, which is another type of humor he uses. Complex humor is probably the hardest to explain, but it boils down to requiring the viewer to be paying attention in order to get it. They have to be paying attention, and they have to actually be processing what's happening. Because the joke is not something that is overt or obvious. It's something that's more complex and layered. <sighs> then, just as a final gag, pretty much every film, except for the Rockies, of course, that is shown there, is one of Brooks's other films, or at least a, a, a mock-up of it. So, these are the types of humor. I, I probably missed a few. Uh, Let's see, there's parody, there's reference, there's crude, there's complex, there's meta. I suppose there's also slapstick. I didn't actually mention that one. Slapstick kind of deserves its own category, even though it can fit in other categories. What's funny is most of the instances of slapstick in this film were actually unintentional. The most obvious example of that is when uh, Goodman, you know, Barf, it is Goodman, right? I'm not saying the wrong name. I'm probably saying the wrong name. I'm gonna feel really stupid later. I'm not gonna look it up. It doesn't matter. The guy playing Barf goes to st- sit up, and he still had his seatbelt buckled in. He says, "Oh, oh, that's gonna, that's gonna leave a mark." That was off script. He actually, the actor who will never be mentioned again by name, actually forgot to unbuckle a seatbelt, so that really did hurt. There you go, slapstick humor, bam. I think that's about everything. I don't know what else to say about this film. This film made me laugh hard, even now. I've seen this film at least a dozen times, probably more. And it still makes me laugh. I encourage you to go watch it again, just for the hell of it. I hope you've enjoyed what little I have to say about this one, guys. This one threw me for a loop, I'll admit it. I'll see you next time.